I hope you guys are doing good. Um, as we get going here today, I want to just start off with a question, and, and that is this. Uh, who here loves problems? Like you, you just, you love it when everything's going wrong in your life. <laughs> you know, when things that uh, you own begin to break or that, you know, you start to have relational conflict or people start complaining about you or, or whatever. Again, you, you just love problems. Well, I doubt that's many of you. I saw a few hands. Uh, I don't know what's wrong with you, but um, <laughs> for me, I don't like them. Often I find problems to be really annoying. Uh, in fact, this, uh, this last winter, both of my cars had a tire that kept leaking air. And about every four or five days or so, I had to, to get my air compressor out and, and pump them back up. And you might be wondering, well, why didn't you just go get it fixed? Well, for one, I, I tried with the one and then the place, the tire place is like, I, we can't figure out what's wrong with it. it. It seems to be fine. And I'm like, it's not fine because every four or five days I'm putting air in it. Uh, but the other reason is just because I'm cheap and I'm, I'm a cheapskate and I have an air compressor, so I just lived with it. But, but the good news is this. Uh, my wife recently hit a pothole with the one and completely destroyed the tire. And God in his grace allowed it to be the one that was leaking. So at least that car's fixed for now. Uh, but my point is this. Problems are annoying, right? They, they often require our time, our thinking, our money, and even our emotions. But, but one of the things I've learned about problems is that, is that many times problems are an opportunity. They're, they're an opportunity first to be reminded freshly that we're not God. That we, we need help. We, we need Him and we need the help of others. They're, they're also a, a good opportunity to, to be humble and to realize that we're not good at everything. We, we can't do it all. We, there, we have a lack of knowledge on some things, a lack of skill. We, we can't do it. We need other people. As well, though, there are, there, there are also opportunities to learn something new. For example, uh, recently our kitchen faucet uh, needed to be replaced. The bolts underneath had completely rusted. And as I got into it, the whole thing was falling apart. And so uh, I went to the heart. Well, first I called my brother-in-law, who's a, a maintenance guy, and and I was like, hey, you think you could help me? And he was like, no, nah, I'm going to be really busy the next couple of days. I could maybe help you in three days. And I'm like, oh, that's got to be done today because there's starting to have problems. So I, I went to the hardware store. I bought a new faucet. I opened it up. I looked at the directions. And I don't know if anyone else is like this, but for me, directions in a box is like, it's, it's like a computer that's froze up. Like it just doesn't compute. I'm like, what? I do what? And then what? What's that picture? You know, it just, it doesn't work. And so I did what some of us do. And, and I found a YouTube video of a guy fixing a sink faucet, which first off, I was thinking, what, what did we all do in life before YouTube? How, how did, how did humanity survive all of these thousands of years? But the other thing I was thinking about is what is it that motivates these guys to videotape themselves fixing something, you know? Like, I, from what I can tell, they don't make any money from it. They're not advertising a business. It's like, is it fame? You know, or are they just, I'll be in the grocery store and someone will be like, hey, Joe, you're that famous plumber on YouTube, right? <laughs> so I don't get it. But anyway, I'm thankful because I use it. But so I watched the video. I'm trying to figure it out. And, and to be honest, I'm not very good at home projects. I'll just, I'll be vulnerable and admit that. And uh, there's always, anytime I try one, about halfway through, there's always that moment where I freak out and I think, I can't do this. What have I done? What, what was I thinking, you know? And there's usually a lot of tools everywhere and just 
things in pieces. And, but usually if I keep pushing, I can, I can figure it out. And let me just, again, be vulnerable and honest here. Um, my wife helped me. And in fact, <laughs> she's probably better at fixing things than I am. And so uh, I'm not ashamed to admit that. Just a little ashamed. Um, but we, we, we fixed it. We got it done. And the thing about it is this, that, that I had this problem of, a, of needing a new faucet. And yes, it was annoying, but it, it created an opportunity for me to learn something new. To, to learn how to do something that I didn't know how to do before that. And as we move on in our series here in Acts today, we're going to see that the church has a problem. In fact, it's a pretty major one, and, and it's one that if left unaddressed could cause some major division and strife within the church. But one of the things that we're going to see is that actually this problem creates an opportunity. And so with that said, will you join me as I read today's uh, scripture passage uh, in Acts 6? If you want to follow along in our pew Bibles, that's page 914. And so let's stand as we read uh, Acts 6, starting in verse 1. Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorius, and Nicanor, and Timion, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests become obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we start off this morning by just acknowledging our need for you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come, you would illuminate the scriptures to us this morning. You would uh, give us eyes to see, you would give us uh, uh, ears to hear and hearts to know. And so we invite you here, uh, open the scriptures for us and lead us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Okay, you can have a seat. So we have a pretty simple outline this morning that will walk us through the text. And, and that is this. First, we'll look at the problem. Then we'll look at the solution. And then finally, we'll look at the results. And so starting with the problem, uh, it's, it's not super complicated. We don't have to, to, you know, do a lot of exegeting between the lines to figure out what's going on here. Verse 1 just lays it out very clear. Here's the problem. And again, it says this. Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And so the first thing to note here is that we're told that the disciples were increasing. And if you've been following along with us in this series, in the book of Acts, you'll know that, that the early church's numbers were increasing sometimes even drastically. For example, in Acts 2, the church went from about 120 to 3,000 in just one day as Peter preached at Pentecost. 
And then a chapter later, uh, Peter and John are on their way to the temple. And, and there's a man there who they, that needs healed and they heal him. And as a result, a large crowd gathers and Peter preaches again to them. And then we're told in Acts 4.4 this. But many of those who heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. And when we went over this passage a few weeks ago, uh, one of the things I said is that, that most likely Luke is summarizing the recent growth from Acts 2 and Acts 3, and he's combining it. But, but even still, he mentions only this is 5,000 men. So when you think about women and children as a part of that number, the church at this point has become enormous. And it's, enormous, uh, it's become enormous in a very short amount of time. And then we come to Acts 5, and we read about the fact that the apostles were performing many signs and wonders, and and they were seeing multitudes of people healed. And then in verse 14 of Acts 5, it says this, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And so here in chapter 5, Luke, he doesn't even try to guess what the numbers are at this point. Um, He's probably like, look, man, I, I went to public school. This this math stuff's getting kind of hard, and so I'm just going to say, you know what, there was a big multitude of people. And so who really knows how large the church was at this point by the time we get to Acts 6? But the point is this, that it was growing very large, and it was growing rapidly. And, and I know many of us are like, man, I, you know, I wish our church was growing more. I wish we, would, we could grow like that. Wouldn't that be exciting? And, and yes, of course, uh, we want our church to grow. We, I pray for that. We are, are working hard for that and asking the Lord to do that. But, but the truth is, is that growth, especially rapid growth, it brings a lot of problems. Now, again, don't misunderstand me. We want that. We're praying for that. I'm just merely pointing out that that it can give you some headaches that you weren't anticipating, which is exactly what we see here happening in the early church. And so, again, first off, the church is growing and it's growing rapidly. And and during this time, there there evidently was a segment of the church, the, the Hellenistic Jews, who were experiencing some neglect. And specifically, it was their Jewish widows, the Hellenistic Jewish widows, who were being overlooked and neglected when it came to receiving uh, their daily distribution of food. And so maybe some of you are wondering, well, what is a Hellenistic Jew? Well, just real quick here, basically, a a Hellenist was someone, a, a Jew, who grew up outside of Israel. And and the reason for that is uh, at the end of the Old Testament, you have what uh, the Babylonians came in and invaded Judah and they dispersed uh, Jews across the world. Many of them were carried into captivity. um, And and so what happened is by the time you get to this section, uh, that was what was called the Jewish diaspora. Um, So the Babylonians did that. But then the Greeks came in later with Alexander the Great and the the Great, the Great, the Great, uh, Alexander the Great. And he began to conquer kind of the known world. And so because of that, Greek culture and Greek language spread and dominated the ancient world. And so if you were a Jew living in, uh, you know, parts of the Middle East or Northern Africa or parts of Asia, uh, you would have grown up culturally Jewish, but you would also have grown up culturally Greek as well. And um, if you contrast that then to, to Jews who lived in Israel uh, during this time, they, they would have grown up mainly just culturally Jewish. And some of them may have knew, knew Greek. That's why the New Testaments were, uh, the manuscripts were written in Greek. But, but it would have been different. You would have had somewhat of a different culture. And, and what many think uh, was going on in this time period is that many of those Hellenistic Jews were moving back to Israel. 
And apparently many of them uh, started to embrace the gospel message and started to join the church. And yet it appears that as the church got larger, they, they, these widows began to get overlooked. And some think that they were getting overlooked because the Hebraic Jews were treating them partially. Or in other words, they, they were being prejudiced towards them. However, other scholars think that it wasn't this an intentional thing. It was a, you know, the, the neglect happened because of a language barrier or something like that. Now, look, I, I don't know which was the case here. We're not told, but, but I'm not naive enough to not think that church folk don't have trouble being prejudiced sometimes, um, especially towards those who are different than them. But, but either way, this is what's going on. This is the problem that the early church is facing. There's a segment of their body that's being neglected. And in fact, the tragedy of it is that it's happening among the church's most vulnerable members. And so that's the problem. And so let's move on now and look at what they did to address it. What what was the solution? And so, again, pick it up in verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit and Philip and a bunch of guys names who are hard to pronounce. Uh, These they set before the apostles and they prayed and they laid their hands on them. And so in response to this complaint, the, the, the 12 apostles, they call together the entire church, both the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. And they say, let's talk about this. We, we need to address this issue. And, and I think at, at first glance, we might be tempted to read their words in verse 2 uh, when they say that it's not right uh, that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. We, we might read that as them belittling this type of service. Or we might think that they're somehow trying to say that that's beneath them, that, that that's unimportant or whatever. But I actually don't think that's what they're doing here. You see, I don't think that the apostles are, are playing down the problem or, or pushing down the need down the ladder. But rather, I, I think they're just simply saying, um, we can't be the ones to meet that. But it's not because they don't care. I mean, the very fact that they called together the entire church to address it shows that they really think that this is a big deal, that they think that this is an injustice taking place within the church. And not only that, they actually let the ones complaining be be a part of the solution. They give them a voice in in terms of solving uh, the the problem. They look back at them and they say, "Okay, then then you pick seven men to address this problem. And in theory, if, if, if the apostles really didn't care, if they just thought, well, that's a minor need that I'm not worried about, they, they could have just said, well, we'll pick one guy. But no, they said, let's, let's pick seven of the best guys. And, and again, look at the character qualities and the, the qualifications for these men. He said, pick seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Now, look, I, I don't know about you, but, but when I think about the qualities and qualifications that are listed here, these aren't the ones that necessarily come to mind when I think about meeting this type of practical need. I think if I would have been there, I would have said, you know, let's pick seven men who have really good administrative, administrative skills, or let's pick seven men who are good at handling finances or who can do a budget. But, but that's not what they say. 
He said, pick seven men of good repute, or, or in other words, pick men who have a good reputation, respectable men. But not only that, they say, pick, pick guys who are full of wisdom, which on the surface, having good repute and wisdom makes sense, I think, for this type of work. But then they also say this, pick men who are full of the Holy Spirit. You see, I think the principle behind what the, the apostles are saying here is this, that, that in the kingdom of God, Character and being full of the Spirit, um, they matter more than gifting and natural talents. And what I mean by that is, is it's not that spiritual gifts and natural talents aren't unimportant. They're, not, they're just not nearly as important as those other things. You see, who you are is more important than what you can do. And the apostles got that. They, they understood that. And so they said, pick seven men who are full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. But I think one of the other things that really struck me as I dug into this passage this week and as I just begin to slow down and read it is that uh, one of the things that, that again struck me was that the disciples here, they really resist the trap and the temptation of the fear of man. And what I mean by that is that it would have been really easy for them to have this complaint come to them and to realize that there was this segment of the church not happy with them. And, and it would have been tempting to try to meet that need themselves. They, they could have said, oh no, you know, the, the church is falling apart. People are mad at us. And so we better, we better stop this preaching and this evangelism stuff. And we better go serve these tables and, and take care of the widows. But that's not what they do. Instead, the, the apostles were so confident in their role and their calling from Jesus that they didn't have to bow down to the fear of man in order to meet the need themselves. But rather they said, you know what? You're you're right. This is a problem. But we can't be the ones to to do it. It would not be be right of us to do that. That's, That's not specifically what the Lord has called us to do. But you're right. It needs to be addressed. And so pick seven of the best guys that you know and we'll appoint them to that work. And again, I was just so struck by that because I think the truth is, is that the fear of man is really powerful. I think all of us, to some degree or another, fight this temptation. I think some of us are so driven to receive affirmation and praise from others and and to avoid having people dislike us that it literally controls our lives. It determines how we dress. It determines how we talk, what we post on social media. It determines what we say yes to. And, And it's why some of us, I think, have a hard time telling people no. It's why some of us are stretched too thin, why we're, we're all stressed out, because we can't stand the thought of telling someone no and having them not like us, or telling them no and having them be disappointed in us. But the truth is this, you and I have to be so free from the fear of man that we can say no to things that we shouldn't be saying yes to. And as this passage shows us, the apostles knew how to do this, but, but do you? Is this a struggle? You see, I'm just worried that some of us have allowed the fear of man uh, to so control our lives that we can't say no to anybody. And so every time someone asks us to volunteer or to serve, we, we, we just can't say no. And so we end up serving out of guilt. We serve out of fear. And yet the reality is, is that both of those things are really bad motivations for serving. And so again, some of us, through the fear of man, we can't say no when we should. However, I think the fear of man also works the other way. I think it also keeps some of us from saying yes when we should. 
Um, some of you in here know that you should be serving in different areas at the church, but you're afraid of what others will think. Or you're afraid that you're inadequate, or at least that others will think that you're inadequate. And so instead, you just you sit on the sidelines. You, just, you don't engage. You just stay back. And look, I, I can really relate to this. You know, I, I have two older kids, and um, well, I have four kids, two that are older than the, the bottom two. But um, the, the two older ones have been playing soccer the last few years. And every year, this league has, has sent emails, threatening emails out to the parents saying, look, if some of you parents don't volunteer to coach, like, we're not going to be able to pull this off. And, you know, here's the thing, though. I personally love soccer. I, I know a decent amount about it. I know what are good drills for practice. I know how to run a practice, all of that. But for the most part, I've consistently told them no, or I just haven't volunteered. And, and the reason I've done that is ultimately because I'm scared of the parents. <laughs> just be very vulnerable here. I mean, I'm afraid they won't like me. I'm afraid they won't like the way that I talk to their kids or, or they won't like how I run practice or a game or whatever. And so because of that, I've allowed the fear of man to keep me from meeting a need that I know that I can probably meet. And maybe some of you here, maybe that's more your struggle. But either way, whether you can't say no or whether you can't say yes, both are the result of the fear of man. And, and I just believe the Lord wants to free us from that. The fear of man will literally ruin your life. It'll so control you that it'll keep you from doing uh, all that the Lord has for you. And so again, I think just the Lord wants to free us from that and to, to help us to understand that it's Him and Him alone that we must fear and that we must follow. And again, the apostles resisted this. They resisted this temptation. And I, I think one of the reasons they were able to do that is because, as I've already said, they, they were so confident in what God had gifted and called them to do. And, and you see the apostles, for them, this, this saying that we have to focus on preaching and prayer, this was not an excuse to not serve. But rather, it was how they were going to serve the church. You see, your calling and your gifts, they don't determine if you will serve in the church, but rather how you will serve. You see, God has called and wired and gifted some of us to serve by, by studying the scriptures and by teaching what we're learning. But he's called and gifted and wired some of us to, to help teach Sunday school, to, to hold infants. You know, some of you just have that special gift that you can pick up a crying baby and they stop. I don't think I got that one. But um, some of you, it's, it's God's just he's gifted and wired you to make things beautiful. And so you can, whether it's using your creativity to make a graphic or to pull weeds and to do the landscaping or to, you know, some of you, it's, it's setting up tables for different events or writing encouraging cards to those who are suffering or, or cooking a meal for a new parent or whatever. You see, all of those things that I just listed are, are so vital and important to the health of a church. And yet, they look differently and they require different skills and gifts, but they are all acts of service. And I just think sometimes as Christians, we get really messed up on this. You see, if you think that what I'm doing right now by, by teaching the Word or, or what I get to do with shepherding people, if you, if you think that's more significant or more important than the volunteer right now teaching the four and five-year-olds or the, or the volunteer who's holding an infant, then I just don't think you understand the Scriptures. And I don't think you understand the heart of God. You see, that's why Paul, I think when he was talking about the church and he was talking about spiritual gifts, he, he used this word picture of the body. 
And he talked about how every single member and every part of the body is significant and necessary. And, and the only part that he excluded to say, well, you know, there's one part that's more important, and that's the head. And the head is Jesus. But other than that, we are all on equal uh, on the, an equal playing field. And so I just think this is so vital that we get this. And uh, that's why pastor and theologian John Stott in his commentary on Acts, he, he said this in talking about this story that we're looking at today. He said this, A vital principle is illustrated in this incident, which is of urgent importance for the church today. It is this. It is this. God calls all of His people to ministry. That he calls different people to different ministries. It is surely deliberate that the work of the twelve and the work of the seven are alike called diakoina. And he's referring there to the Greek word where in verse 2 it says serve and in verse 4 it says ministry. He says the former is the ministry of the word or pastoral work. The latter is the ministry of tables or social work. Neither ministry is superior to the other. On the contrary, both are Christian ministries, that is, ways of serving God and serving His people. Both require spiritual people, full of the Spirit, to exercise them, and both can be full-time Christian ministries. The only difference between them lies in the form that the ministry takes, requiring different gifts and different callings. And so again, I I hope what you're seeing here is that through this passage, we have all, all of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, all of us have been called, gifted, and empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve God and to serve others. And so what that means is this, that it's not a matter of if we will serve, but how we will serve. And I'm not sure that we should just get all hung up on spiritual gifts. And, and what I mean by that is, is don't wait till you figure out what, you know, how God has gifted you before you start serving. And, and I know, you know, I think the way God's designed it is that one of the ways we begin to figure out how God has called and wired us and even gifted us is by just simply stepping out and beginning to serve. And I know for some of us perfectionists, that's, that's a real struggle, we just think, oh, I, I, you know, I don't know what my gifts are and I don't want to mess anything up in the meantime. So I'm just going to keep waiting and reading books on serving and, and books on gifts until I figure this thing out. No, don't do that. Look, as a fellow perfectionist, I can understand this. Um, but I've had to learn to fight this. For example, when I uh, first started following the Lord, one of the first ways that I started serving was teaching uh, fourth and fifth grade boys, Sunday school class. You see, I had this strong desire to teach, and I I had this hunger for learning, and I just wanted to share what I was learning with others. And so uh, the church I was at had an opportunity came up, and there was a need to serve uh, these fourth and fifth grade boys. And so I just jumped right in. But after about a year or two of getting eaten alive by these these boys, <laughs> and I mean literally, they they like like no joke. There was one fifth grade boy that I'm pretty sure knew more theology than I did at the time. And he was just, Mr. Carruthers, are, are you sure that's right? Because I, I don't think that that's what the Bible means. You know, it's just, I'm like, hey, shut up, kid. No one asked you. you know? <laughs> and uh, I begin to realize that working with kids is maybe not my best fit. And um, I mean, I, I love my kids. I just don't love your kids. And, and <laughs> but um, just kidding. I don't, maybe I don't know your kids. Maybe I would love them. Um, 
But I didn't just, okay, so I did that. It didn't work out great. But I didn't just say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I better just stop serving until I figure out how God's called me. No, I just, I went to other areas. You know, I'd make coffee. I served in the high school ministry, whatever, until I began to sense that, that God had called and wired me in a certain way to be a blessing to the church. And I've tried to be obedient to that. And that's true of all of us. That's not just true of me. You see, the truth that we can't forget is this, that God has designed his church to function in such a way that every single one of us is needed and is vital to the health and the success of the church. And because that's true, every one of us is supposed to be serving in the church at some capacity. That's why he's given us different gifts, different personalities and different callings. And so I just think when it comes to this this big idea of serving, I think sometimes the thing that hangs us up is the fear of man. Sometimes I think it's a misunderstanding of the church and elevating some roles above the other. Sometimes it's getting hung up on gifts. But if we're being honest, I think more than all of that, the thing that holds many of us back from serving is just pure selfishness. And what I mean by that is that I think many of us are just so focused on our own lives, our own needs, and not just our own needs, like, like past just surviving. We're, we're, we're so focused on our wants and our desires. I mean, can we just be frank here? Sometimes, if not a lot of the time, serving stinks. <laughs> it's, it's inconvenient. It costs us something. There, there's a price to pay with serving others. And yet, part of the maturing process, part of the process of becoming more like Jesus, is a moving away from being self-focused to others-focused. You see, many of you uh, in here know, know that I have twins, and uh, they're, they're a couple months away from becoming two, and for the most part, they were pretty easy babies, and by that I mean they ate well, they slept well, and, uh, but as they've started to move into toddlerhood, my wife and I have gotten really scared, and uh, you can pray for us. Um, <laughs> The reason we've gotten scared is because they've become quite a handful. I mean, it's you go somewhere and you set them down and they just they run away in opposite directions like boom. And so you're trying to make, OK, that decision of who do I whose life do I save right now? You know, which, which is never a decision you want to have to try to make as a parent. But um, so that or you'll turn your head and and literally within seconds, somehow they have scissors and markers in their hands. And you're like, Where, where's this stuff coming from? You know? Um, and then other times I'll, I'll come home from work and I'll look at my wife and I'll just say, like, did we get robbed today? Like, what happened in here? You know, like there's literally stuff everywhere. She's like, I just cleaned up two minutes ago. And I'm like, all right, you can tell yourself that. But um, just kidding. I've seen it. I've seen it in action. You're literally picking stuff up and they're pulling other stuff down and it wears you out. But so anyway... One of the other things that's been scaring me, though, is I've, I've started to realize lately just how selfish and self-focused they are. They, they literally seem incapable of looking out the needs for anyone else. And so, for example, Mabel, our, our girl twin, she is in this big phase right now where she grabs toys and literally screams, Mine! I mean, this little girl knows like four words and one of them is mine, you know? Like, that's crazy. And she'll even rip something out of her brother Henry's hands and, and just scream mine and, you know, even give him a little push. And, and it's just been crazy as parents to watch this. Because here's the thing. We never taught them to be selfish. We didn't have to say, you know what? If you really want something, you push people and you steal it. That's the way you're going to make it in this world. It's just a part of the fall of man. It's just intuitive in us. And yet part of our job as parents is to help them mature and grow past that. 
Part of our job is to come alongside them and to help teach them to not look out only for their own interest, but also the interest of others. And so again, one of the ways you and I, in this maturing process and becoming more like Jesus, one of the things that begins to change is we begin to serve others rather than simply serving ourselves. We begin to look out for the needs of others rather than just our own. And yet the truth is, today's culture more than ever is making living like that a real challenge. In fact, I ran across this sermon this week as I was preparing, uh, and the title of the sermon was this, Serving in the Age of Selfies. And in that message, this pastor went on to talk about the fact that, that it's such a challenge today to, 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 to help train people to, to get their eyes off of themselves when, when culture and everything around us is training us the exact opposite. It's training us to become more self-focused, more inward, more uh, just about ourselves. And yet as followers of Jesus, ones who have been called to live and to look like him, we have to fight this. We have to be different. We have to mature beyond this. And, and that's why Paul in Philippians 2, he said this. He said, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, you and I, again, if you're a follower of Jesus here today, you have been called to become like Jesus. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit is at work inside of you to accomplish He is conforming you into the image of Christ. And and Paul here tells us that that in that process, we need to have the same mindset as Jesus. The very one who, who, though he was God, took on the form of a servant. And the truth is, that title, that role of a servant was not an embarrassing one for Jesus. He was not ashamed to be called a servant. That's why he told his disciples in Matthew 20 this, He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And who would ever be first among you must be your slave, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus' whole life and ministry was one of serving others, of putting others' needs above his own. And he has called you and I to do that as well. And so this this is where we have to move to if we want to become like Jesus, if we want to become men and women who are full of the Spirit. And so again, if we move back into our story here in Acts, one of the things that we see is that, is that yes, the, the early church had messed up. They had allowed a segment of their church to get neglected. They, they had a real problem, a real issue. But they went on to address it. They, they fixed it. And, and what we'll see here in a minute is that it led to a wonderful opportunity. 
And so let's finish up uh, our story here by looking at that last part, and that is the results. Again, verse 6 and 7 of Acts 6 says this, These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And so the Hellenistic Jews, they pick seven men to serve in the church. The apostles then lay hands on them and pray them and appoint them to this work. And then Luke summarizes for us the results of what took place afterwards. He says, the word of God continued to increase and the numbers of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. He even points out that maybe for the first time, some priests start to become obedient to the faith. That that some of the Jewish priests actually started to embrace the gospel. Now, you may be thinking, well, was Luke really trying to indicate that the the growth that happened was a result of the church addressing this issue? Well, I think that absolutely Luke is trying to show and to communicate that the growth that followed was tied to this story. You see, because the problem with the widows, what it did was it forced the apostles and the church to really think through what their primary calling and purpose was. And because of that, because they they got things squared away, that that part of the apostles' role was to preach the word and to pray, and because the church started functioning in a healthy way, I believe God blessed it and caused it to grow, to continue to grow. You see, even there, when the apostle said, we need to, to focus on the word and prayer, and then Luke says, he tells us that the word of God increased. So as those apostles gave, they, they gave their hearts and their energy to what God had called them to do, the, the word spread and the number of disciples grew. You see, I, it, not only that, but if you remember when I started off this message, I, I talked about how problems can be annoying. But I also said that they can also become great opportunities. And, and in this case, not only did this problem lead to new growth, but it was also an opportunity to have some more uh, godly men step into leadership in the church. And actually, what will happen here in our story in Acts is, is Luke's going to shift his attention away from the apostles to two of these seven men who were just appointed. Over the next two chapters, he's going to introduce us to a man named Stephen who Mike talked about last week. And then in chapter 8, he talks about Philip, who was also one of these seven and the thing that's so amazing about these two men is that, is that, yes, they were appointed to serve tables and to serve widows. But they also would go on to continue to spread the gospel and to serve the Lord in other ways. In fact, the very next verse in Acts 6 says this about Stephen. It says, he was a man full of grace and power. He was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And people all the time try to say that, that only, or argue that only the apostles perform signs and wonders and miracles. And yet here it says that Stephen, a non-apostle, did those things as well. And I would argue that he did them not because he was special or because he was the first martyr, but because as it described him, he was a man full of the Holy Spirit. And the same is true of Philip. It talks about, again, these seven men were men who were full of the Spirit. In chapter 8, Philip is going to be used by God to heal many people and to cast out unclean spirits. And so I just want to encourage us that that the next time that a problem comes into our life or comes into our church, that that we keep our eyes open, that we keep pressing into the Lord and, and even asking, Lord, is this an opportunity for something different? 
Is this an opportunity for someone new to step into leadership or to, to serve in a different way or to serve our community in a different way? Because as we saw here in the story, this, this problem led to an opportunity that just, I think, unlocked some new things in the church and, 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 and helped them to, to make sure that they were taking care of the needs within the body. But as we close here, I just want to end by, by refocusing our attention on this idea of serving. As I already said, serving God and serving others is not an option for the follower of Jesus. And look, serving is not, it's also not a stepping stone uh, to something greater, to some greater title. We don't serve so that we can, you know, move up the leadership ladder. You see, the truth is this, you and I, we never graduate from serving. And the reason we never graduate from serving is because Jesus, the one that we love and the one that we follow, described himself as one who came not to be served, but as one who came to serve. Jesus humbled himself. He served humanity all the way to the point of death, to the point of taking on our sin, taking on our punishment. And so if that idea is true, if you and I never graduate from serving, we never move on beyond it, then I want each of us just to take some time this week to honestly sit before the Lord, to to ask the Holy Spirit to say, uh, does my life look like Jesus in this area of serving? Am I allowing the Spirit to empower me to use the gifts and the, the, the talents that He's given me to be a blessing to others, to serve others? Just again, sit before the Lord, ask yourself, am I, am I living a self-focused life or am I living an others-focused life? Are there needs in the church that the Lord is calling me to meet? Because here's what I know. None of us are going to be laying on our deathbeds regretting that we didn't watch more Netflix. None of us are going to be laying on our deathbeds regretting that we didn't watch more sports or that we didn't browse more Instagram or Pinterest or whatever it is. And so again, in light of that, I just want to challenge you to, to take some time this week to sit before the Lord, to ask the Spirit, to have an open conversation, an honest conversation with Him, and just just ask, Lord, are there ways that I should be serving that I'm not? And maybe for you, if, it's, if you can't say no, maybe you just need to ask, Lord, are there some things I should be saying no to that I'm not? And just believe that He will speak in that moment and, and instruct you on in how He wants you to be a blessing to others. But for now, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we, we're so thankful for the church. Lord, what a blessing it is to be a part of your, your bride, your body. And Lord, we know we make mistakes all the time. We blow it. Lord, there's needs that go unmet. But Father, I just pray for this, this church here, this local body, that you, God, you just so full, uh, fill us with the Holy Spirit that we could really just, there would not be a needy person among us. God, that there would not be some segment of our church or, or some group in our church that's being neglected. But that each of us, Lord, who know you, that we, that we would really just uh, jump in, Lord, and serve in the ways that you want us to serve. That we would be like Jesus, Lord, that we would have that same mindset, that, that mindset that doesn't look out for your own interest, but for the interest of others. And Lord, we confess that we cannot make that happen on our own. Lord, in our own strength, in our own power, in the flesh, we will always be selfish. We will always be focused on ourselves. And so, Lord, I just pray you'd fill us. 
You'd help us to to yield to the Spirit and to to look like Jesus in this area of our lives of, of serving others. And so again, we just ask for that. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.